I don't know if you happen to notice on Lana, we call her the fiddle player back here, a little extra bling on her ring finger. She got engaged this weekend, so y'all can be sure and give her some love after the service. I don't, I guess, I figure she might pop her little hand out and show it because, you know, we get excited about that. So it's good to see everybody here this morning, and uh, it's been great. Uh, worshiping and singing praises to the Lord. And as we come to Luke chapter 4, we come to this uh, very interesting text where Jesus is, is tempted. Now, what, what we've been seeing in the, the chapters of Luke, in the early days of Luke's gospel, he's been showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, he repeats this over and over, chapter after chapter, leading up to chapter 4. It's been very clear that, that Luke is saying, look, I've investigated it. And I've carefully looked at this. Jesus is no ordinary baby. He was, the, the, the conception was not ordinary. There's nothing ordinary about this, this person. And so he's saying to us as readers, we have to deal with this. We have to grapple with this claim that Jesus is the Son of God. And so when we get to chapter 4, it's no surprise that that's what's on trial here. Is Jesus really the Son of God? Because he's going to go through temptation. And the devil is going to say twice in these temptation narratives, if you're the son of God, then do this. If you're the son of God, then do that. Well, actually, if he's the son of God, he won't do this. And he won't do that because the devil is tempting him in these trials, these situations where he's putting him. And so if you think about the literary context of our text today, then the, the context is, is Jesus really the Son of God? And if he passes the test, if he doesn't sin, if he overcomes temptation, then we are in a place where we need to admit the, the evidence is mounting. We have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And the Bible clearly presents him as the Son of God. We can't just respect him. We have to either reject him as crazy man or we have to humble ourselves and worship him as the genuine son of God. Jesus has been with, if we look at the first couple of verses, that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan. This is returning from his baptism where God said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing for those days and when they were ended, he was hangry, right? He was hungry. And it, I just think it's funny that Luke points this out. He was hungry. Why does he say that? He says that right before he is tempted. Now, the literary context is very important, but let's just think for a moment the historical context. Jesus is coming off a mountaintop experience, his baptism, where God said, this is my son. He's finally about to go public with his ministry. He is on a, in a great place, but now he's been tired, 40 days without eating, 40 days without really good sleep. He is tempted because he's hungry, he's tired, he's coming down off a mountaintop. This is a very practical thing to think about when we think about temptation and overcoming temptation. We are mental, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual beings. All of that comes into play when it, when it comes to being faithful. And we need to just be honest and admit, 
when we are tempted, oftentimes we're not in a good place. Either we're not getting good sleep, we're not getting a good diet, we're not in a good place physically, and we're off a mountaintop experience with the Lord. Satan loves to take those opportunities to try to bring us down. Many times you'll hear preachers say, Mondays are terrible days. That's the darkest days oftentimes for ministers of the word. They've poured themselves out on Sunday, and Monday are just usually very dark days. And it's not surprising that those are days that they're probably the most tired. And so what we see is many aspects of this temptation, one of them being physical. But what we want to do today is look at more of the theological aspects that are being presented in this text with Jesus' temptations. And what can we learn about how to overcome temptation? That's what Luke is doing. He's, I want you to see that Christ overcame temptation He is the Son of God, and He is the key to you overcoming your sin and your temptation. So that's what my prayer is today. Lord, I ask that you would help us grow in our battle with sin. I pray that you'll help us understand how Christ gives us the power over temptation, how we can overcome the power of sin in our lives by the power of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so what I want to do is go through these different, these, there's three temptations that Jesus is, is subjected to. And each one of these, I want to go through the nature of the temptation. I want to see his response to that temptation and then try to draw a lesson for our benefit out of that. So let's look at the first temptation. I'm looking at verses three and four. Here's what he says happens. The devil said to him, to Jesus, if you're the son of God... Then command this stone to become bread. You're hungry? Well, then use your power to make this stone become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So let's think about the nature of this temptation first. Jesus is being tempted to use his divine power to disobey God. Apparently God, clearly Jesus felt it was the leading of the spirit was not to eat at this time. He felt that was the will of God, but he's starving. And so Satan says, well, hey, just use your power to turn the stone into bread. Let me just pause for a minute and make a very important point about Jesus and his temptation. Jesus is very hard to understand in the flesh. He's fully God, but he's fully man. And so when we try to think about the nature of his temptation, we're tempted, no pun intended, we're tempted to think that Jesus wasn't really tempted. It wasn't really hard for him. I mean, he's God. How could this be hard for him? Well, when he's in the incarnation, when he's in the flesh, Jesus was self-limiting himself. In other words, the Bible makes it clear in different places that he could not because of his own plan, he, he would not use his divine power to make this easier on himself. Or to say it another way, Jesus is tempted just like we are tempted. The same way that we are tempted, he is tempted. The same way that we must overcome temptation, he overcame the temptation. In other words, he is put in the exact same situation that we are put in to be the sinless one who did what we don't do, who did what we can't do for ourselves. He always overcame each temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus, in every respect, 
in every respect has been tempted just as we are. In other words, when you're tempted, you can know Jesus faced the exact situation. He has been tempted in exactly the same way that you have been tempted. And he didn't like go to his, his God card to get out of that temptation. He got out of that. He overcame it exactly the way that he calls us to which is by faith and reliance on the Holy Spirit, not playing some divine card that we don't have. And so it's important to remember that as we look at the nature of this temptation, what we see God, the, the devil doing is telling Jesus, why don't you use your divine card, your divine power, to turn this stone into bread? You're hungry. And so when I think about it, the nature of this temptation is this. The temptation is to disobey God in order to satisfy the cravings of our flesh. It's to disobey God in order to satisfy the cravings of our flesh. Don't raise your hand literally, but how many of us face this? We face this all the time. To disobey God, to 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 satisfy some craving that we have, in particular physical cravings. Like think about the tempted to overeat in order to have entertainment, in order to feel satisfied when life is not satisfying. Tempted to cut corners at work in order to just experience a little leisure and, and to make life easier. We are tempted to do something unethical or to take advantage of someone at work who, or, or a customer who doesn't know what we're doing in order for the craving, to satisfy the craving of money, possessions. We're tempted to be greedy or hoard in order to make, satisfy the craving of feeling secure. We're tempted to be controlling and we're anxious when we're not in control in order to satisfy the feeling, I want to feel comfortable that I know how things are going to turn out. We're tempted to sin when we want more intimacy from our spouse. That's the nature of this temptation that Jesus says, I've been there. I was starving. I hadn't eaten in 40 days. That's borderline starving to death. And he was tempted to use his power to disobey God to turn a stone into bread. Now, that should help us understand that temptation in itself is not a sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin for Jesus to literally feel the urge and the desire or the appeal to use, to, take, to, to disobey God to, to satisfy a physical craving. The temptation itself is not sin, but it's a sin to disobey God to satisfy a craving. And so the nature of that is, that's the nature of this temptation. But let's see how Jesus responds. Look what he does in verse 4 again. In verse 4 it says, Jesus says, it is written. What is he doing there? It is written, he's quoting scripture, man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus is quoting scriptures. I think it's very important to understand that for us in our battle over uh, temptation and sin. The word of God is the sword of the spirit in our spiritual warfare. We need to know the Bible to help us fight temptation. But what is he doing? He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. So let me flip back. And this is how you are a student of your Bible. 
If something's quoted, you want to go back and read what does that quote say, what's going on in that text. That'll help you understand what, what's being said here. So in Deuteronomy 8.3, uh, this is uh, quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3. It says, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. Now, what is that talking about? Well, if you read all around Deuteronomy 8.3, you realize it's talking about the events that are recorded in Exodus. So what do you do as you read your Bible? You go back to Exodus, and that's in Exodus chapter 16. And you read what was going on in Exodus chapter 16. Well, this is where the whole picture starts to develop to make sense of your passage in Luke. Israel has been delivered out of Egypt And the Bible uses that whole scene as a picture of being enslaved, because they were enslaved, they were in bondage in Egypt. And it is used as a picture for us of being enslaved to sin because of our disobedience to God, because that's exactly how they got there. They disobeyed God, they were enslaved, they were uh, being oppressed by Egypt, and then God delivered them out. And then what happened? They disobeyed again, and so now they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. And in that time, they got hungry. And they start to, to whine, and they start to moan, and they start to forget what life was like in their bondage. And they long for the good old days back in Egypt when they had pots of meat to eat. And they forgot all about the, the terrible consequences of their oppression and their slavery. And so as they were in that condition, they called out to God for help. And God being the gracious, merciful God he is, what did he do? He provided donuts from heaven. It's called manna. What bread? Literally, it's, it was a light, fluffy, breaded type breakfast food. That's donuts, people. I'm telling you, God is good. He is gracious. We don't have any, but they're coming soon, I hope. So, donuts from heaven in the morning and quail meat at night. God did this for them, but when he did this for them... He gave them specific instructions. He said, now look, I want you to only collect enough that will provide for that day. And on Fridays, you can collect enough for two days because on on the next day, the Sabbath, you don't have to collect. But don't collect more than one day's provision. And we saw, of course, did they obey? Some of them did, but most of them didn't. So they decided, I'm going to collect a little extra Make sure I can take care tomorrow. And that extra got worms and maggots and it spoiled. And so what we see from that, that whole scene is explained to us in Exodus 16 verse 12. Moses tells him why the Lord did this in 16:12. He said, at twilight you shall eat meat. In the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. And and whoever gathered much, it says in the text in verse 18, whoever whoever gathered much to provide for a big family had just enough for the day. Whoever gathered enough just for, for one person had just enough for the day. But whoever gathered too much, the extra spoiled. And so what we see is whoever trusted God, God provided for that day. And so this starts to fill in our understanding of what Jesus means when he says, man shall not live by bread alone. He's saying that we must learn to trust God. 
In, in Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is a picture of an eagle bringing the eaglets their food into the nest, feeding them out of their mouth. They are totally dependent on their father, their mother, providing for them. We are totally dependent on the Lord's provision for each day. And so that starts to help us understand what is the lesson of this temptation. Here's the lesson. In order to overcome temptation, you must learn to be content with what God has provided. In order to overcome temptation, you must learn to be content with what God has provided. This is the key to overcoming the desire to use to disobey God in order to satisfy the cravings of the flesh. Are you content with what God has provided you? For example, let's say you think you deserve more intimacy with your spouse. You think, how is that a contentment issue? That is absolutely a contentment issue. And you can choose to view it that way. And once you do, you say, okay, Lord, am I content with what you have decided you're going to provide, or am I going to sin? Am I going to disobey because I think I deserve more? And that's what leads back into enslavement and oppression to sin. You think you deserve something in life? What is it? You say, I'm not content with what God has provided. I deserve more. I will cut corners. I will do this sin or that. I will disobey God in this area because I think I deserve more. In order to get victory over these temptations, we must do the battle of contentment. Are you content with what God has chosen to provide you? He says, I will provide for you each and every day. Trust me. All right, let's look at the second temptation. This is in verses 5 through 8, uh, back in our Luke passage. In Luke 4, verses 5 through 8, what does he say? He says, and Jesus, or yeah, verse 5, and the devil took him up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered again, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, him only shall you serve. Okay, so let's think about the nature of this second temptation. The devil tempts Jesus with a desire for power, all earthly power and glory. He tells Jesus, if you'll worship the devil, the devil says, if you'll worship me, then I will give you all this authority and all the power of all the earthly kingdoms. Now, that's interesting if you think about it in Jesus' case. Jesus already had all that. But what did he choose to do? He chose to set that aside, Philippians tells us, and he emptied himself. He considered those things not something to be held on to tightly, but he let go of those in order to take on human flesh, in order to enter into our sufferings, in order to be the Savior that we needed. And the devil says, I can give you all the powers of these kingdoms if you will just worship me. So what really is at the heart of this temptation for Jesus 
is a, a desire to circumvent God's plan. Because see, Jesus had to go through suffering through the cross and then return back to the place of glory. So really, Satan is tempting him not to go through the suffering that God, that has, that God has in store for him. Satan is tempting him, use your power to avoid going through God's plan for your life. The nature of this temptation is to abandon God in order to be in control. To, to transfer your allegiance to someone or something else in order to be in control because you don't like the plan that God has for your life. Now, with Jesus, it's a little hard to understand. We think, well, how can, how can he do this? But he was being tempted to rid himself of his self-limitations, to take the reins of power and control back into his own hands. How many times does life go in a certain way, and you just say, I want to be the one that makes the decisions here. I don't like God making the decisions. I don't like the path that he's got me on. I want to set the direction for myself. I want to choose for myself. I want to be in control, i.e., I want to be God. Now, this is exactly the same scene we see in Genesis in Adam, with Adam and Eve. If you remember the scene, God had created them. He had blessed them with all the heavenly blessings. All the, all the earth's blessings were there. All the kingdoms were there. All they had to do was trust God. And if they trusted God, they would obey him. And as long as they trusted and obeyed, they enjoyed his blessings, infinite blessings. And they enjoyed them eternally. But what happened? Satan came to them. The Bible laser tells us that this serpent represented Satan and said this. She said, he said, eat the fruit. She goes, no. He said, if I eat, I'll surely die. He said, you really think that's what's going to happen he says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And this is verse 5, 3, 5. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, if you eat the fruit, God doesn't want you to eat the fruit. Because if you eat the fruit, you can decide for yourself. You can be in control. You can decide what's good and evil. You don't have to depend on God anymore. You can be like God. And they thought that was the secret sauce for happiness. Is if I could just be like God, be in control, make the decisions for myself, then I will be happy. Aren't we tempted like this all the time? We don't like the plan that's unfolding in our life. We think we deserve a better plan, a better direction, less suffering. We don't like the to hear the, the bad medical news. We don't like to, to hear the loss of the job or the delay of a, of a, of a desire that is the longing of our heart. And so in, at that moment, we're tempted. I'm not going to bow the knee to that God. I'm going to decide for myself. I'm going to take control of my life. And I'm going to get what I think I deserve. I don't like the plan. I'm going to come up with a better plan. And we're all tempted of that, all the time. But how does Jesus respond? Deuteronomy, he quotes again, he quotes scripture. When he's tempted, scriptures. When he's squeezed, scripture's what comes out of his mouth. I wish it could always be said that of me, that when I'm squeezed, that's what comes out, is Deuteronomy, right? Is that what comes out of y'all when you're squeezed, Deuteronomy? 
You just know it. Deuteronomy is such a part of your heart that when you are tempted and you are suffering, you're like, let me quote Deuteronomy. He said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, where's that coming from? You go back to Deuteronomy, you read that passage, and that's a passage where Moses is telling Israel before they go into the promised land, so you see the image, they're going out of oppression and slavery to their sin. Christ is delivering them, God is delivering them to the promised land of blessings of where you just live under God's reign and it's glorious. And in the middle, they're in this wilderness and they're just about to come to the edge of the promised land. The Lord is giving them instructions. Moses says this, be careful to do, to obey that it may go well with you. So the secret sauce for life and blessing and an abundant life in the promised land is that you obey the Lord that it may go well with you. That's Deuteronomy 6.3. Obey what? Well, in 6.5, he says that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And you do what he says. You make God God. You bow the knee to God. And you worship him and you obey him. That's the secret sauce to life in the promised land. It's not being God. It's being with God and aligning yourself with God. So what's, what's the point? Well, he goes on. He says, when you eat, this is very helpful for us as a very blessed people. He's talking to them going in the promised land. When you eat and when you're full, then take care, take very careful, lest you forget the Lord. It is the Lord your God that you shall worship. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. Isn't that interesting that that's the warning? When you are blessed, and when you have blessings of God poured on your life, don't forget God. New Testament, Jesus says it's really hard for rich people to go into heaven. In the Old Testament, hey, when you're blessed by God, you better be careful. Don't forget God. So maybe we see the difference between these two temptations. When Jesus was starving, be content with God. When there's plenty, be content with God. So what's the point here? I think the lesson is very similar. Contentment. But here, maybe the focus more is on being content with God's plan for your life. If we're going to have victory and temptation, we need to learn to be content with God's plan. Not only God's provision, temptation one, temptation two, but also be content with God's plan. We've got to guard against letting the blessings of God make us prideful and give us a sense of entitlement because we're used to getting what we want because we've got resources. We can get what we want. And the moment God doesn't give us something we want, I don't want him to be God anymore. I'm not going to bow the knee to him. He's not giving me what I want. So as soon as we do this, we're tempted to refuse to let God be God and we're, we're tempted to worship someone or something else. That's the lesson that Adam and Eve learned in the garden when they thought the greatest thing would be to be like God and to know the difference of good and evil, to make my own path. 
But what did they learn? What happened when they disobeyed? They ate the fruit. Their eyes were open, it says in Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. That's south. That's the southern pronunciation. They were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. So what happened when their eyes were opened? What did they learn? Was God holding out from them? God was protecting them from their differences and protecting them from shame. God was being faithful to them. And what John Selhammer, one of my favorite authors and scholars, says that what we see in the Genesis account is that what we need most is not to be like God. What we need most is to be with God. We think we want to be like God, be in control. No. What we need is to be with God, bowing the knee to Him, aligning ourselves with Him. God is protecting you. God is good. God, what you don't understand and what you can't see and what you wish you were in control of, I promise, you don't want to be in control. God is using His power, His omniscient power, His omniscient control to protect you and to provide for you and to bless you and to do good for you and to lead you to the promised land. Don't stiffen your neck just because you don't like the plan that he has for your life. Temptation number three. Look at verses nine and following back in Luke chapter four. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He'll command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike a foot against a stone. And Jesus said, It's said, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. So what's the temptation here? Well, he's basically tempting Jesus to say, God, prove you love me. God, prove yourself to me. Because right now, I don't see it. And if you really do, then do something to prove yourself to me. What's scary about this temptation is the devil's taking Scripture and twisting it. He's quoting Psalm 9111 where the psalm says that God will protect you. He will be your protector and he will send angels to protect you. And, and the devil says, oh, well, if God says he's going to protect you, then where's God now? Make them prove it. Make God prove himself. Test, put God to the test. You don't like the way God's, turn, God's provided for you. You don't like the life that's before you. You don't like the news that you get. You don't like the path that you're on. You're tempted to say, God, where are you? God, I thought you said this. I thought you said that. You need to prove yourself to me. Prove that you're good. Prove you love me. Prove you've got a plan. Show me. I don't want to trust you. I want you to show me. Jesus responded with Scripture again. Here's the response. It is said, you shall not put the Lord to the test. So the nature of this temptation is doubting God is good. Doubting God is faithful. Doubting God really loves you. The response, again, is quoting Scripture. You shall not put the Lord your God to your test. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. 
And then he says in that text, should not put the Lord God to test as you did at Massa. So you go back to Deuteronomy. Where was Massa? That's what I did. I looked up Massa. Where was that? Oh, that was Exodus 17. That's funny. Jesus was just quoting from Deuteronomy, which led us to 16. And now we're at 17. And what was that? Well, they had eaten all these donuts and they'd eaten all the quail and now they're thirsty. And so what'd they do? Seeing God provide, what'd they do? God's been faithful. God's proven himself. What'd they do? They tested God. Well, where's the water? Where's the coffee? You give me donuts, but where's the coffee? I'm thirsty. Isn't that human nature? God provides. God provides. God proves himself. He's been faithful. He's been great. And the moment you're thirsty again, whining and griping, God, I thought you loved me, but you provided this donut. Now I can't hardly swallow. I need some coffee. And that's exactly what they're doing. And Moses said in Exodus 17, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And then he said, God, what do I do with this people? And what did God do? Slap them down. No. Hit the rock. I'll give them some water. I'll provide. That's the kind of God that we worship. But in Exodus 17, 7, It's interesting to note in the closing comments, and I think this is what we need to know about this test. It says, he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing. He called it, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, here's what they tested the Lord saying, quote, is the Lord among us or not? He just gave them manna. He just gave them quail. And the moment they're thirsty... Is God here or not? It's such a commentary on our nature. This temptation comes from doubting God's presence and or questioning God's faithfulness. Doubting leads to demanding. That's the lesson of this temptation. Doubting leads to demanding. We demand God to show up and do something when we doubt his faithfulness and his goodness. So when you're tempted to demand that God do something for you because life isn't going the way you like it, you need to recognize we don't want to be in a place of demanding God do anything. How do we know God is with you? How do you know God loves you? How do you know God is good? You can review all the good things he's done, all the donuts from heaven and all the quail meat at night, all the the blessings of your life. You could list them off and that'd be great. You go to the word of God and review all that he's done, but you know the greatest picture of God's love for you is the cross, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus is our high priest. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. In every respect, he has been tempted as we are yet without sin. God provided a Savior who would suffer the temptations we suffer to not sin like we've sinned in order to be the sacrifice we need to provide the righteousness that God demands of us. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this is so important. Romans 5, 
18. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all of us, we all sin, have the sin nature of Adam, so one act of righteousness, Jesus, led to the justification and life for all. For as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus's, the many will be made righteous. Those who put their faith in Christ are made righteous. They get credit for passing all the temptations even though they don't pass them themselves. That's what, that's what God's like. That's his character. It also means that Jesus can help you as a believer in your times of temptation. When you're tempted, when you're doubting, when you're wanting to demand, when you're wanting to grasp, when you don't like the plan, Hebrews 4.18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When you're tempted, you don't, you don't have to wonder, does God get this struggle? Yeah, he does. Notice that last verse of this text says that Jesus, the, the devil left and came back looking for, waited to come back for an opportune time to come back. The scriptures tells us that Satan is like a lying, roaring, and seeking someone to devour. But praise God, he's able to help us in our time of temptation. My prayer is that today you will be reminded of God's goodness. <clears throat> because knowing he's good, knowing he's great, knowing he's loving and faithful is the key to trusting him and saying, all right, I'm not going to go outside your, your will. I'm going to obey you and trust that you're leading me ultimately to the promised land. Father God, we pray for your help. We pray you'll restore to us faith in your goodness and in your grace that we may overcome temptation. And anytime we doubt your goodness and your grace, may we look to Jesus as the ultimate display of your goodness and grace to us, that he who knew no sin became the one who bore our sins so that we might be righteous in your eyes. Lord, you did that for us. We couldn't do it for ourselves. And may everyone here this morning put their hope and trust solely in Christ as your great provision for overcoming sin in our life. Lord, we love you and thank you for your faithfulness. Forgive us where we fail you. Cleanse us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.